Gentry come and speak to us. Eric spent eight years growing up here at Mac. He's the son of Lonnie and Lynn Gentry, who Lonnie was our preacher at the time. He has since gone on to great things. Graduated from ACU with a bachelor's degree and an MDiv. He now works with the Highland Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, and has been there for six years. He's married. He has two children. Can you be kind of amazed? Uh, and one on the way. He's an excellent speaker. He's been asked to speak in several different lectureships around the brotherhood, and so I was excited that he was willing to come back and speak to us tonight. Eric, come and talk to us. According to feedback, according to family, we're still getting that feedback. There we go. According to family legend, it was at this very church that my mom would occasionally let me sit by my dad on the front row. And that was all good during the worship, during the singing and the praying, but during the preaching it presented a problem because now there's a six-year-old boy alone and unattended in the front of the church where everybody can see him and his dad can't quite reach him. And I suppose I've always been keenly aware of a sermon that's gone on just a little bit too long, and so I, I suppose it was one of those Sunday mornings where I decided that as my dad was up there just waxing eloquently, that we were all sufficiently waxed, and that I needed to take matters into my own six-year-old hand. So I took the coloring book that my mom had given me, and on the blank back side of the coloring book, I wrote as large as I could, hurry up. Actually, I wrote Harry up, because spelling has not always been my gift. I wrote hurry up, and then I, I held it up. And my dad ignored me, but my mom saw what I was doing. She was on the third row. The only problem was that on the second row, between my mom and me, was Charles and Sylvia Branch. <laughs> and so my mom, as she is trying to figure out what to do, how to strangle my neck without alerting Charles and Sylvia to what her six-year-old son is doing in the front of MacArthur Park Church of Christ, I decided I needed to take matters into my own hand. And so I stood up on the front row, and I turned that sign to the audience to gain support <laughs> for my cause. I think Charles and Sylvia probably noticed. I think everybody else did. But the thing is, nobody complained about it. I don't remember anybody disagreeing. <laughs> you know, sometimes preachers need to hurry up. But that was, that was the last time I sat on the front row till this evening, right here. <laughs> Come full circle. When I think of my church home, I think of MacArthur Park, Church of Christ. This is the place I grew up, and I have so many wonderful memories of being formed here. I got to have lunch with Richard Chow, the godfather of ministry. And it was a powerful, his, his influence on my life was really powerful. What Richard doesn't know is that the first time I played Truth or Dare was on the back of his church van. My first kiss was at Mac. My first fist bite was at Mac. During the fall festival, fists were flying. So uh, a lot of firsts happen here. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is true of me. It's by God's grace I am what I am. And it's by Doug Brown's grace that I'm here tonight. Our, our text for tonight comes out of John 1. John 1, 1. It's a text you're all familiar with. If you have your Bible and you want to go there, you can. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm sure you have seen those inflatable men that are in front of car dealerships. You know, the ones that kind of look like a big piece of spaghetti with two arms, and as the air blows up them, they kind of do this number. You know, for some reason that makes you want to buy a car. I don't know what it is <laughs> about those things. Well, if, if, you, if you can kind of keep that picture in your mind, you'll know what it's like to try to put a jacket on a two-year-old. You know, like as soon as you get that jacket out, your, your kids just start doing this number, and they're screaming and stuff. Okay. So my wife and I were visiting our family, my father-in-law in Dallas area over the holidays, and it's cold, it's Christmas time, it's cold, and my father-in-law wants to take us out for Mexican food, and since we're in Texas and not Memphis, I'm glad to go. And so he, he says, let's load up in the car, and I spend about 10 minutes trying to put jackets on my two kids, i got two boys, two and four, and I'm about tired of this number, and so I just give up. And I just throw them in the car in short sleeve shirts, and I just plan we're going to park close to the restaurant. Well, we get to the restaurant, it's enchilada night, okay? So all of Dallas has come out to this restaurant for the $2 savings on enchiladas. So we... So we we, we do park close. I get them inside, but everybody's huddled inside because it's, it's cold outside, and everybody's uncomfortably close together as we're waiting to get seats because there's this long line. Everybody's packed in close together, and so I'm holding this one kid who's just whining and crying in my ear because he's so hungry, and my four-year-old is just standing at my waist just punching me in the stomach over and over again. I'm crowded next to all these people I don't know, and I can see chips and salsa in the distance, right? And I, I'm convinced I've entered one of Dante's seven circles of hell, except that there's chips and salsa, and that's only going to be in heaven, right? And so I can see them in the distance. My son's just punching me, and this lady next to me looks at my two sons. She kind of looks up and down like this, and she says, where are their jackets? And so I wanted to explain to her everything about the inflatable men and car dealerships and hell. But, <laughs> but all that came out was, well, their jackets, they're at home. And she looked disgusted. And she said, I had to put on a scarf, admittance, and two jackets just to walk out of the house. And I said, well, lady, they're going to be a lot tougher than you are. No, that's what I wished I'd said. <laughs> What I actually said was, oh, okay. And then I spent the rest of dinner thinking about all the things I could have said. And by the end of dinner, I decided that was the best thing I could have said. Lady, they're going to be a lot tougher than you are. So I thought about going and finding her and telling her this at the restaurant. But the enchiladas weren't sitting great, and my kids were cold because they didn't have jackets. <laughs> words. People are careless with their words, right? My wife is, is pregnant and with our third child right now, and you'd be surprised how everybody wants to comment on the size of her belly, right? Like, newsflash, she knows. <laughs> you know, like, she has noticed the growing middle around her. There's a sweet senior saint in our church that came up to her the other day and said, bless your heart, honey, are you sure you're not having two? <laughs> nope, just one in there, just one in that oven. I understand why Jesus wants to get away to quiet places, the Gospel of Mark says. This world's just overrun with words. Everywhere you look, words on the screen, words on the screen in your hand, words on the radio, words in the television, words in your, from your friends. Everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, there's these words. And you wouldn't exactly accuse Jesus of being wordy. Really, if you look at the Gospels, does it have a lot to say? There are some times he says a bit, but mostly it's what he does. And what he says in John, you've really got to unpack like this. He says, I'm the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, see what I mean? I mean, those are powerful words. You just read those and you're just drawn to them, but they're not just self-evident. Right? You really got to dig into those words to understand what they're saying. The disciples, for example, really could have used some help interpreting these words. I feel for the disciples. First time Jesus comes across those who will become his disciples, they ask him where he's staying, and he just says, come and you'll see. You know, he could have just said, I'm, I'm staying down the street. He said, no, just come and you'll see. Or when he approaches them, he's walking on the water. Remember this scene? He walks on the water. And I imagine the disciples would have liked an explanation for how he did that, or at least what it meant that this guy was walking on the water. But all he says is, it's I. Don't be afraid. That's all he has to say. I wonder what the disciples would have tweeted about that night. <laughs> what they would have posted on social media. Social media is a funny thing. You know, I, you know I'd like to, to say, to tell you that people think about what they post on social media before they do, but that would be lying, and I don't, I don't want to lie to you. Right? I think a lot of great pastoral work is done on Facebook and Twitter, but there's a lot of puffing our chest on social media. Every time something happens in the world, some major issue pops up and news feeds all over, and what you feel compelled to do is to get on social media and, and share what you think about that thing. Everybody just goes immediately to their Facebook, and they, they post hoping, to, if not at least prove to you, and not at least convince you to change your mind, then at least to prove to you that they are very righteous. Because they've, well, they posted something about it, right? There's actually a term for that now. It's called virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. Have you heard that? People, people use that word. The idea there is that you, you feel strongly about a cause, then you use any platform you have to demonstrate how strongly you feel about the cause. Now, whether or not you do anything about that cause is kind of irrelevant because you, you have signaled how virtuous you are. You virtue signal. But Jesus just doesn't seem that concerned with virtue signaling, at least not with his words. And when the woman is caught in the act of adultery, remember, everybody wants, her, wants Jesus to do a speech, try to say something, and all he says is, let any of you who've been, who is without sin cast the first stone. And he just goes down to writing in the sand. But I think about social media is what you post on social media is there forever, and what he writes in the sand probably blew away a few minutes later. Everybody wonders, what did he write in the sand? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, now don't get me wrong. Jesus, he's not afraid to use words. In fact, we've got to pay attention to what Jesus says. You remember Jesus says this about, about himself. For the one whom God has sent, speaking about himself, speaks the words of God. He says that in John 3. In fact, five times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that what he is saying comes straight from the mouth of God, that his words are God's words, and so you better listen to what he has to say. But that's not exactly what John 1 is saying, our text for tonight. Apparently, it's not just that Jesus is saying what God is saying. It's that Jesus is what God is saying that Jesus is the Word 
that God is speaking. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. In the beginning. Those words should make you think of something, I hope. If I, if I had put together the Bible myself, I would have made John the first gospel in the New Testament, so then the Old Testament and the New Testament would have started the same way. In the beginning. In the beginning. But nobody asked for my help with that. Those, those three words, it's two words in the Greek, do remind you of Genesis 1, don't they? In the beginning. When in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hover, hovering over the waters, and God said, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. John's trying to get you to remember by starting his gospel in the exact same way that the Old Testament begins. He's trying to get you to remember that very first story when God spoke and all of creation was birthed just like that, just at the word of his mouth. And he's retelling that story here, John is. And he's not saying that that first story that you remember so well is wrong. He's just saying that story is so much better. It's so much richer and deeper than you thought it was. That's one of the really beautiful things about the Bible. It was read for centuries and centuries, and its stories are written by these people who knew God in part, right? And the stories they tell help lead us closer to God, help lead the Israelites closer to God over centuries. But then Jesus shows up, and who, as Hebrews 1 says, is the Son who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When Jesus shows up on the scene, those people who have been reading their Bible for centuries, suddenly knowing Jesus, knowing the way the story ends, changes the way they read all those old stories. Suddenly all those old stories mean something different or more than they did originally. The blanks are filled in. The footnotes become headlines in the story. My four-year-old son broke his foot recently. Broke his foot recently. He's playing at a, in a jungle gym and fell on something and broke his foot. And I thought he was being dramatic. And um, in fact, I have a, a friend who's, who's a podiatrist, and I was texting him about what my son was doing, and I, I actually texted the words, he's just being dramatic, right? And then my friend said, well, if he's still hurting in, in a day from now, why don't you bring him in an X-ram? And so here's what's playing on in the back of my mind is that this is playing out. My sister, when she was three, was playing on the church stage and jumped off. Okay, jumped off the stage, and the whole congregation heard the snap of her leg. But my dad said, she's just being dramatic, right? And so for three days, they, they didn't go to the doctor. And so that's kind of in the distance, playing in my, my mind. So we go to the doctor the next morning with my son, and he does the x-ray, and turns out it's broken, right? Turns out it's broken. And when my doctor friend came in and told me that my son's foot was broken, my beautiful, sweet, innocent four-year-old son, his foot was broken, my first thought was not, poor guy. My first thought was, I've become my father. <laughs> but right, knowing that his foot was broken made a lot more sense of the way that he had acted for a day. You know, he had been making me carry him around everywhere we went in the house, making me kiss his foot a lot, which is kind of gross, right? But when you know how something ends, it changes the way that you read the beginning. It changes the beginning of the story. And that's what's going on. And here, the followers of Jesus, like John, look back at all these old stories and what we would call the Old Testament. Those stories like they find 
in Genesis and those here in Genesis 1 and really the rest of the Old Testament. And suddenly those stories make a lot more sense. And there in that first story in Genesis 1, God is speaking. He's speaking. And as a preacher, I like that. It makes me feel good about what I'm up here doing tonight, making you all endure, right? If you've ever read the book Moby Dick, anybody ever read that? I'm sorry if you have. But maybe you've seen the old movie. Have you seen the movie? It's a lot shorter. You should watch it. And one of my favorite scenes is when the preacher, who's it's in this seaside church, Father Maples, and the preacher, he climbs up on a rope ladder up to the podium, and as he gets up to the podium, you, real, you realize it's actually the bow of a great ship that extends over the congregation. You remember this scene? And he's standing there in that pulpit, and he's looking down on the congregation before, and he's telling the story of Jonah and the whale, the great fish. And he looks down on the congregation, and he shakes and he blusters, and he points, and he shouts, and giving the sermon is like, is like giving birth. It's hard, and it's loud, and it's painful, right? Kaim Potok starts his book in the beginning with these words, all beginnings are hard. And for us, that tends to be true, but not, as it turns out, for God. Right? I've reminded of that new worship number by Hillsong. Maybe you've heard it on the radio. Have you heard this? God of creation. There at the start, this is a creation story, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark. You fleshed out the wonders of light. And as you speak, 100 billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. And as you speak, And as you speak, there in the beginning, God is speaking. He's not blustering. He's not shouting. It's not hard. He just speaks, and all of creation darts forth from his mouth, right? Darkness turns to light as he speaks. But John knows Jesus, the Christ. He knows how the story ends, and so it changes the beginning for him. And he says this story is so much more than you thought because it's not just that God's words formed the world around us. It's not just that God's words created possibility for us. It's not just that God's words breathed life into us. It's that those words were Jesus himself, right? It's that God has been saying one thing since the beginning of time. He has been saying one thing over and over again. And what God has always been saying is, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. you got to stop and sit with that for a minute. Because that, that is a, a dramatic departure from sometimes the story that we tell. You know, a story about the Old Testament is kind of a big failure. Right? That it was God's attempt to, to have a people on this earth, a people that were his, a people that were loyal to him, faithful to him, and he tried a bunch of different things, and they all failed, right? He gave them judges, and he gave them a king, and he gave them laws, and he gave them prophets, and he put them in a garden, but they just kept messing up, right? And so God has to go back to the drawing board, and it's late. It's the fourth quarter. He's got no other options, so he throws this Hail Mary in the form of his son, and he doesn't want to do that because, goodness sakes, it's his son, right? He doesn't want to send his son to die for us, and sure enough, the people kill his sons, but fortunately, Our sins are covered in the process, and God lets them stay dead for three days, but then God finally busts him out. (sighs) Praise God. 
that could have gone south. John's saying something really different than that. He's saying that Jesus has always been the plan. Jesus has always been what God is saying. The word of God there at the beginning. Now listen, it's not, it's not the Bible that God has always been saying. It's not the church that God has always been saying. Now, of course, we wouldn't know Jesus apart from the Bible, and we wouldn't have the Bible apart from the church, right? But don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the center of both the church and the Bible, right? Jesus is the point. Jesus is the reason we exist. He's the reason those pages were written. He's the reason the church was birthed. He is the only thing really worth saying, Jesus. And sometimes we want God to say what we're saying. But try as we might, God doesn't hate all the same people we hate. You know? well, try as we might, God's not always on our side. He doesn't scream all the words that we scream. There's no virtue casting with him. There's just virtue, right? There's no pulpit he's shouting down from. There's just sand that he's scribbling in. And we don't get to dictate what God is saying, his word. But for those who have ears to hear, the Word made flesh, Jesus the Christ. The Word is such good news that Jesus is not a mistake. He's not an afterthought. He's not a Hail Mary. He is what God has always been saying. He is the Word God has always been speaking to you and for you, Jesus the word. Are you listening? Are you listening? You remember when Elijah stood in the cave and this great wind comes and it shakes the mountains, but God is not in the wind. And then there's this earthquake and the mountains shake again, but there's still no God in the earthquake. And after the earthquake comes this roaring fire that rages on by the cave that God is not there. And it's not until Elijah hears this gentle whisper that he knows, ah, the Lord of hosts is in this place. In Jesus Christ, God is whispering. He invites you into this life of justice and mercy, of love and peace righteousness and faithfulness. The very character of God, his word, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's not blustery. He's not loud. But he's whispering. And perhaps he's whispering to you. Are you listening? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace.